Hey everybody, welcome to Studio HFL. I'm your host, Larry Powell, and I'm glad you're back for another interview. Today's guest is Judith Saxton, and this is show number HFL 97. This first interview with Judith is from July 10th, 2020, and is being released one day after her live interview with me on February 1st, 2021. Both interviews can be found on the YouTube channel. Of course, you can listen to these interviews on any podcast platform, but now you have the option to also watch them on the Studio HFL YouTube channel. The show fans recently stepped up and got the channel over the 100 subscriber mark, and my next goal is to get to 150 subscribers. You can help me get there simply by visiting the YouTube channel and subscribing. And while you're at it, I'd also encourage you to visit Apple Podcast and leave a star rating and a review. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Studio HFL. And one more thing, to keep up on releases and to get a heads up on other news, you can subscribe to the newsletter at StudioHFL.com. My Patreon patrons deserve recognition for their support for every interview that gets released. Thank you guys for your support via Patreon. If you would like to be a part of the Studio HFL community, please visit Patreon.com slash Studio HFL. There are four tiers of support from which you can choose, each with benefits for becoming a subscriber. And now a word about my show sponsors. Pickup Blackburn has established themselves as a top tier resource for trumpet players. There's an incredible line of mouthpieces, both custom and stock, that you can choose from with expert guidance from Eric Murine. And the Blackburn trumpets are the choices of pros like Vince DiMartino and Dave Hickman. Design, execution, delivery, and customer service driven, Find out more at picketblackburn.com. Brass players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, perhaps even more so than other musicians. If you have an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers has your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to a wide variety of color schemes. Don't forget about options for mouthpiece pouches or pretty much anything you'd want to keep protected in a custom case. Check them out at messinacovers.net. One of the great things about small business is that you get the opportunity to provide exceptional customer service while delivering exceptional products. At Hammond Design, Carl Hammond provides a line of stock mouthpieces for trumpet, cornet, mellophone, trombone, and tuba, and custom orders for all of those plus flugelhorn. All made possible because Carl listens to you and then creates a piece to your specs. Everything is better in HD, and you can find out more at carlhammonddesign.com. The Eastman Music Company has become a force to be reckoned with by manufacturing and delivering high-quality instruments across the board. Eastman Winds provides a line of brass instruments from the beginner to the pro models, and you know they're invested in the quality of every instrument when the one and only Doc Severinsen designed their beginner trumpet model. Find out more at eastmanwinds.com. S.E. Shires, another division of the Eastman Music Company, offers a complete line of brass instruments for the discerning musician. Options are available with stock instruments, but custom orders are where Shires has made their mark. As both an Eastman and Shires artist, I can attest the quality of the horn in my hands no matter what my performance situation. You can find out more at seshires.com. And now, on to my interview with Judith Saxton. Judith Saxton, welcome to my podcast, Studio HFL. Great. Ah, so the latest piece, I've been writing quite a few pieces mm -hmm. uh, in the last year, but a couple years, but uh, Lament for Our Times is my most recent composition, um, which literally was written uh, in response to and as a result of George Floyd's passing. Oh, wow. Floyd. 
So it has three movements and uh, they are, the first movement, it's for trumpet and viola. And the first movement is called, um, I Can't Breathe slash SOS. Mm. The second movement is two minutes, 53 seconds, which happens to be the amount of time that uh, the policeman held George down after he stopped struggling. Wow. For that long. And then the third movement is called Resolve. And I utilize two very well-known tunes, but they are holy, both holy because they come out of the spiritual tradition, and also they are holy because they're full of holes <laughs> um, initially before, mm -hmm. and the voices go back and forth, and we leave out, you know, there's rests at odd places, and it doesn't quite mm -hmm. finish. It starts in minor. And the trumpet's kind of stuck back on the other two movements, doing motives and playing. It's very interesting. And symbolism and what each thing represents. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, most of it's clear, but you won't get all of it. Mm -hmm. You know, so. This is heavy stuff. This is heavy stuff. Well, I've actually done and will continue for the rest of my life. Uh, I'm a member of a church that's very socially full of social justice and mm -hmm. uh, all means all at our church, so everyone is invited. It's a Methodist church, so we may have to step outside of the Methodist church since mm -hmm. uh, the broader international Methodist church, with the largest component being African, has many of them, it's illegal to have, uh, homosexuality is illegal in many countries. Mm -hmm. Our church all means all, so we may be stepping outside of the Methodist church. Right. Somehow, right. Green Street United Methodist here in Winston-Salem is very socially, social justice church. Yeah. So I've been training and active in, um, we have an anti-racism team at our church. And so I've been learning, of course, and training in anti-racism for about four or five years mm -hmm. and doing a fair bit of everything from protests to poll worker, poll protector voting, um, you know, things, getting the right. out and driving people to polls and just anything to do with actually the poor people's campaign is right. everything I'm interested in. Yeah. Barber who's kind of the new Martin Luther King and he's from North Carolina and now it's national. And anyway, so yes, when this happened, I wasn't comfortable going out into the streets because of the masking and social distancing. Um, and uh, I had asthma in the past, so I'm not quite sure if I'm more mm. susceptible to this, but I'm obviously trying to be there. Yes. And so I thought I had to respond. I mean, this was the final straw for so many of us. And it really sparked, I think, really. Yeah. Did the Me Too movement. But absolutely must be continued to be addressed for the rest of our history. So. But, you know, uh, how to address is one thing. I, when I was talking to Byron Stripling a few weeks ago, this was right after uh, George Floyd's murder. And I said, Byron, look at me. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a white guy. I have no idea what to say. And he said, you just did. Yes. The fact that you engaged me yes. is, it says enough. Or yes. not, maybe not enough, but it said something. There's but, so you know, there's still this, this hesitation, right? It's like, what do we do? Well, what do we say? As people that 
are not of color of, as white people, there are many resources that we need to read because it is not been taught in our schools. Yeah. But we need to catch up on the actual history, really, truly, of our yeah. country. And it's on us to do that. Mm -hmm. We're not supposed to use our people of color that happen to be our friends and colleagues as a resource. They have so much on their plate on a daily basis that we do not, that it is not appropriate to use them as a learning resource in that mm -hmm. regard. Of course you should engage with them and open up with them and be as honest and forthright, mostly listen and learn. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of that humility and learning that needs to be occurring. And I think people are recognizing that. Yeah. Yes, there's absolutely fantastic resources available. But for me, um, since I have been composing and it's a way that I can feel as if I'm engaging with people in this time of COVID, mm -hmm. I've been composing a little bit more. And when this happened, you know, I walk a lot to just process things. And I was thinking, I need to write a piece. And it really started coming to me how I would write it and how it would work and with whom I wanted to perform it. My friend of over 22, 23 years, uh, lives close by, she's on Eastern Music Festival faculty. Not that at that point I actually had no, I actually didn't have any idea I was going to be part of that. Mm -hmm. But she's close by, you know, within an hour. Um, we're very close friends. We've roomed together for a number of years at festival. She happens to be African-American. I love the sound of viola, that alto sound. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to be something that would not seem as if it would work. So we'd have to find a way for our two voices to work in the conversation. All part of the plan to make it representing mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. I was thrilled when she was willing to come over twice in the end to work with me. We had to do it indoors because of her viola. I've been doing all my other stuff with people mm -hmm. at socially distance on my deck, you know. <laughs> but it's North Carolina. It's in, you know, high 80s, lots of humidity, and now right. it's humidity. Now it's in the 90s. So she came over and uh, it was it was a lot of work and we collaborated actually quite a bit and on the last I mean in terms of tweaking and making it, it great the last movement we both looked at each other after we videoed it once and we're like I need to go twice as fast like we both had the exact oh. <laughs> you know good musicians all of us so um, it's very we feel like it's our piece at this point you know so mm -hmm. and so uh, so it is a kind of a Kind of a bigger thing because most of the work I've done has been for solo trumpet, um, which I'm either going to self-publish or look into other things because a lot of it's very good for development of mm -hmm. from high school through professor recitals. But I did write a piece last year for our upcoming CD project, which is for my trumpet and organ. Mm -hmm. um, and I just... I don't know. I we want. I wanted to thank the place where we were doing our our recording, and I thought, "Oh, write a piece." Oh my gosh! Thank God I didn't know what all that entailed. It actually came out really fast. But it was for trumpet and organ, and I'm a pianist. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and I've played with organs my entire <laughs> career. Because mm -hmm. before moving where I was at, which State, who has this fantastic Marcusen organ, I think it's Marcusen in Wiedemann Hall, which was built around the organ there. Wow. So I was like, I must perform with, or you know, like I did all my recitals with organ, mm -hmm. um, or a recital with organ every year. So, and plus other recitals, but 
Yeah, so I didn't really actually know how to write organ, though, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had specific, ide- specific ideas. Um, but again, my collaborator, my duo partner, Dr. Timothy Wilson, who uh, was at the School of the Arts with me for 10 years, and he's still there, but we worked together for 10 years. Yes. Uh, he also has like a, I think, I think it's a doctorate in theory, or he was the theory doctorate intern, or how do you say that at Eastman? So like, <laughs> I said, here's what I want to do, and he's like, you can't do that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Which then, yeah, don't you love it when people say that? Oh, I really, there was only one part that I really wanted to go this other way, and he's like, it makes no sense. <laughs> and I knew I could always insist as the composer, but I was like, okay, well, you know, and I was like, here's what I want, and I'm not quite sure how to get that, or is it appropriate to do this? And, mm-hmm. Or I'd write him something that was very pianistic, bum, bum, bean. Mm-hmm. And he'd be like, mm-hmm. okay, you need to go longer and longer, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a few things I had to learn, but it's very, it's kind of, it's somewhat simplistic, I guess. I, not to, I think it's, we both think it's a great piece. It's been a world premiered already in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. A nice colleague of mine plays second trombone there came to the recital and he's like, very fine. Not even for a first effort. This is a worthy piece. <laughs> it was nice to have a passion. <clears throat> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, you know, we, we kind of knew it was a good work, but yeah. that was written just to thank the place where we were able to record that. And that's mm-hmm. going to be coming out sometime soon. Yeah. Yeah. We're at the point where everything's been done. We just have to get it mastered. And then find someone to maybe make some artwork and uh, probably put it out ourselves. We're gonna yeah. uh, we are gonna make CDs because some of the older crowds that come to our recitals still want CDs. Yeah, some people <laughs> keep readers, some people still have them for cars. Yeah, yeah. And of course we're gonna have digital downloads. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're very excited about. I have a number of. You know, normally, well, not normally, lately, I've been asking, how have you been navigating the pandemic? But you've just said <laughs> you've been navigating this. I mean, it sounds like you're as busy as you can be. Well, you know, it took a couple of months because really, you know, we were all shocked. Uh, I remember I worked March 14th, mm-hmm. you know, the day after most people went home from school. We still had a session Greensboro has a I was covering principal in that symphony for this year and um, they had a session in a brand new performing arts center which has not even had its debut or premiere or how do you say that about a building mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we actually they Greensboro Symphony had hired <clears throat> a place from uh, LA I used to know the name of it I don't anymore but that is a virtual concert hall. They come and they bring their mm, yeah, they yeah. it with their computers. So we had to perform that morning for them so that they could tweak the speakers, mm-hmm, get mm-hmm. that all set. But then that was my last gig until yeah. God was when, you know? Right. I mean, a lot of us did Easter things where we recorded early or, I mean, I've done some recording like that. Yeah. Certainly, um, and various things along the way but very 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 i could probably count them definitely in one hand yeah and then um i actually you know really took it as an opportunity to start a, a raised bed garden first time ever i've been home enough to water it right. 
twice a day and here in you know, North Carolina <laughs> and an herb garden and all these other gardens around my property. And then I, um, I did a lot of, I did about 25 hours of Alexander Technique Zoom calls. I have been teaching online for five mm-hmm. years and I've been teaching Alexander Technique and brass and trumpet and forever mm-hmm. to get coached by me. Um, but it was a way for me to stay in community, a very fine, embodied, wonderful, kind of holistic, almost mm-hmm. community. Um, and I also have done a lot with like a centering career group at church. Uh, um, Cynthia Bourgeau is a great book out, The Heart of Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening. And then I've done a number of things. I'm in a Sangha through the Palm Village Commission of Thich Nhat Hanh. And I've done, there's been beautiful free offerings through a number of online magazines that have offered mm-hmm. biggest summits for five days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously I'm a meditator and a prayer mm-hmm. and prayer, prayer. Uh, yeah, I think a <laughs> prayist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a prayist. That's so funny. I'm yeah. Never, yeah. That's funny. I've never said that. Anyway. Um, and um, so that's my top, my top uh, priority, I'm sure everyone has a priority during this time, and I knew going into it, I mean, I had an inkling, I'm not saying I'm all knowing, God, God, <laughs> but I had an inkling that this was not gonna be a couple of weeks. Oh yeah. So I thought this, I'm going into this with self-care as my top priority. And it was interesting, I was just on a Zoom call last night on grief and resilience. And everything that we've been talking about in the, those who us those of us who can see each other on Zoom and the chances we get to talk and articulate things with mm-hmm. other people, uh, we've all been calling this stress. And you know what? It's actually, it's actually all grief. Every single thing that we've lost, there's about 15 to 20 things that we've lost just under the column of events. Mm-hmm. And then there's social, mental, spiritual, and emotional, along with physical ways that this is manifesting and things that we have lost. Yeah. And grief is just over a person. It's over anything that you have lost. It's grief is love with no place to go. Ooh. I've never heard it phrased that way. I've I can't attribute it to the right person, but that is a powerful way of remembering yeah. what it actually is. Yeah. Love music. I mean, I actually love music even more than trumpet, which is unusual in the trumpet world. <laughs> no, but I, but I get it. I mean, uh, you know, the trumpet is your voice. It's not the music itself, right? Yeah, and I actually am a singer, so my voice is my singing, and my trumpet happens to be another outlet for it. Mm-hmm. So music for me is really, I mean, I teach music 100%. Mm-hmm. And you can teach so much trumpet via music. But I yeah. really make up. And so, of course, I miss being a musician, and I miss performing for people. And so in answer to your question, those first couple months had very, very, very little music, except the things that were still being recorded, you know, for services and things. But it was after Memorial Day, when I went outside and played that Taps Around the Yeah, yeah. Taps for Veterans, and I played it out on my front porch. And then I played like a little, I played by year all the time and I know all those tunes, of course. And so I played a little concert for my neighbors and a few friends mm-hmm. that walked over. And 
do you know I got a massive spark of motivation because I had <laughs> no motivation. It was difficult to plow through getting things done with my CD project. Um, I did write a few tunes along the way that I shared with people, but I really got a massive spark and was able to start doing much more um, mm -hmm. after performing for people because it is a way for us to uh, share our voice. Yeah. Just get our voice out there, but share our voice and what we have to say and how we have to say it. Yeah. Really with others, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting, <clears throat> even the whole introvert, extrovert aspect of things. Somebody uh, jokingly said, you know, on a meme, uh, well, this has got to be heaven for all the introverts. Well, the opposite, you know, for us extroverts who who feed off being, you know, Zoom is not the replacement. The Zoom meeting is not the replacement for that that physical space that you share with with people. And it's even from that aspect, it's been really difficult. There's no question. We are herd animals. We're social animals. Um, I mean, I actually have, I need it. I mean, those that know me well. <laughs> but I needed, even though I've done so much work in the last four or five years, especially for the arts and everything, I left a lot of things. I left the North Carolina brass band. I was playing principal solo cornet there. Mm -hmm. Just needed to leave all that go so I could really find my center and find my ground and uh, actually find a much more palatable lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> but even so, because of my extrovert tendencies, I much of my work is around the country and the globe, mm -hmm. so lots of travel. So, and even here in Winston-Salem, I'm traveling to, you know, Raleigh or right. to play a lot of times with Charlotte. So that time, the first two months was really also spiraling down mm -hmm. to a level that was, um, you know, uh, consistent sleep time, really good nutrition, you know, things that really do get tossed out the window quite quickly with mm -hmm. a lifestyle. Even though I'm primarily a classical musician, the way I'm played at least. Mm -hmm. um, and so our lifestyle is a little bit more reasonable, you could say, in terms of timing. Right. That's, again, that's a probably basically privileged comment. But I mean, it's that all that to say that I'm generally home by 11 or 11.30 p.m. Right. But even so, that time that we had that first couple months of just Re-establishing connection to you know sunrise and sunset and <laughs> the planet mm -hmm. rhythms that took a while for me to get all the way down to where I need to not need but would like to go from on a daily basis mm -hmm. and I again I can't list the amount of ways that I have been fortunate in my life and my career and in this time mm -hmm. my. Um, my Tai Chi teacher is 75, but he has continued his morning practice about three miles from myself mm -hmm. in an outdoor park. Because it's, you know, it's North Carolina. It's been beautiful. Mm -hmm. I do it year-round. Um, and we meet. There's usually about eight of us. So it's always underneath the 10 rule that was in place. Mm -hmm. We keep eight to 10 feet apart. We go through. We do like meditation at the trees for a while and some Qigong. And then we meet and do some... Qigong again and calisthenics that he that derives from the form 
Mm -hmm. And then we go through the 1048 form. And so that has been an absolute lifesaver because we've been able to obviously have some social interaction mm -hmm. and be doing something so good for ourselves and the planet both. And um, just because every time you do those wonderful things, you're helping mm -hmm. everybody out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been a huge, I mean, I, I've always adored being outside and need to be mm -hmm. outside, but that's been a real answer to many prayers of how am I going to get through this as a, yeah. as a person that I have, I'm on my own here and <clears throat> don't have uh, family crawling down my neck or getting on my nerves. <laughs> I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn here. Um, you produced a CD, I don't remember how many years ago now, that was such a welcome addition to the the well, I would even say for all trumpet professors ah, or trumpet it, teachers happy, but now I know who, 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 right, you know, but it was all those, those solos that get played at solo and ensemble. Concerts and contest pieces. <clears throat> yeah. It's called for trumpet and piano. Yeah. And we recorded pieces that had not been recorded at all previously, mm -hmm. or if so, had been recorded over 40 years previously and only on LP. Mm -hmm. So there were some amazing pieces that we got on that CD. The Giannini Concerto had never been, actually that's been put on an LP, but, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then this fantastic, um, you know, we're going to talk about that stuff that wasn't on my brain, but the Concertino <laughs> by Kutzier. Yeah. Phenomenal work that had never been recorded. Not easy. And so, yes, yeah, some were you know, right. than the others. Um, but yes, I think it was a needed resource. I actually have gotten a lot of feedback that there needs to be another one. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so I, I'd love to do that. But of course, I wouldn't have the gift and the bountiful blessing of having the International Trumpet Guild immediately put that out to five yeah. members. You know, <laughs> right, right. Or, or more. And, um, you know, that was a big step forward for them. That was the first time just to acknowledge the elephant in the room that they had had a woman on the cover. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't normally, I think for our trumpet and organ CD, it's going to be a picture of a trumpet and organ, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have to be me, but in this instance, I felt it was actually pretty critical. Yeah. Because I envisioned that CD being in, you know, maybe some Muslim or Arab country where possibly, not that everybody would like this, right. possibly the women are, at least by Western standards, less free. Right. And they would see this CD of a woman playing the trumpet, or at least holding one. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, actually, and that was kind of part of my vision, like that this would actually be in the libraries of some of these universities that mm -hmm. might stumble across that and and see that again. That is, there are no barriers to that whatsoever. Right. Cultural. Right. Well, and and you know, again, going back to Carol Reinhardt, yes. you know that. Uh, well, and Abby Conant, yes. you know, all these, all these uh, barrier yeah, movers and barrier yeah. breakers, right? I'm doing this and, with my hands, meaning yeah. like the ship going through the water, just <sighs> cutting yeah. through the ocean waves and the sea waves. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at Carol. She was 18 when she was doing this beautiful soloing around the 30 mm -hmm. million went around the world. I mean, you're going to interview her, but yeah. And Abby just maintaining, you know, consistent 
belief in what she had to offer and mm -hmm. all the energy that that took to put that forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But needless to say, they're all great pieces of music on that on that yeah. CD. And I know what I looked the other day, and it's actually from 2011. Oh, was it that it long ago? Flies by. That's when. Oh they, my gosh! I know it's yeah. Crazy. Yeah. You know, for those of us in our... So it is time for another one. <laughs> yeah. However, however you can put that together. Teaching wise, how, uh, what's this coming semester going to look like? Ah, where you teach? So, you know, I have left all full-time academic things. I was in academia for 30 years. I didn't know that. Oh, did I was actually in academia. I was actually, yeah, I was teaching for 30 years and actually still am teaching, of course. Um, but 17 of those years were full-time for me at uh, Wichita State, previous to my mm -hmm. at the School of the Arts uh, here in Winston-Salem. And I was at the School of the Arts for a decade. And when I began my um, Alexander Technique teaching, it became pretty obvious, actually quite early on, it took me quite a few more years to kind of come to the full realization that um, possibly maybe that specific school didn't really align with a lot of the values that I was learning. Mm. Mm -hmm. at um through alexander technique and being a full self person that has time for self-care and things like that mm -hmm. so um i made the decision to leave i think it was a decision that was possibly shared by a few on either side of the aisle <laughs> <laughs> but um needless to say so since then i've actually been kind of doing a fair number of, you know, what's interesting is I made the choice to not do anything about any promotion in any way of my career because I was fairly well known and I, not to sound in any way unhumble, but I figured I would get a fair amount of work if I said, oh, I'm free of the school and I can do whatever. Mm -hmm. I said nothing. I think I barely changed my status on Facebook, didn't make any announcement mm -hmm. because I needed a lot of recovery time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even so, I think, well, I, I recall, it's not I think, but I had already set up six weeks in Europe and a recital in London, and I had a recital the day after I got back, and then I played with Toledo, and it was, it was pretty nonstop until January of that very first year. Mm -hmm. And... I remember I gave, I think it was 20 master classes around the country the next year wow. <laughs> and six or eight recitals. Players, I remember talking actually with Ryan Anthony the last time we had mm -hmm. an opportunity to speak. Ryan had been here in Winston-Salem playing with the Winston-Salem Symphony because he had been at the School of the Arts the year before me. He had taught oh. the year before I arrived. Mm -hmm. And so we had a lot. In common, of course, and he was always very generous with his time with everyone. So we went out to dinner or lunch when he was here playing with Winston Salem. And I remember telling him what I was doing, and he's like, I, I never did that many recitals in a year. And I was like, <laughs> I was like really? Because he's known to do so right. much, even right. while going through his chemo right. regimen there. Um, but anyway, that's just how it worked out. Um, and again, I find. A lot of places I go, they still kind of, the students really need to see women playing. Yeah. And not everywhere in the country. There's many studios that have the model. Gals in them, but they're, they feel very empowered by that. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So I do, I do try to make that available for whoever is interested. And so it's been really neat. Sometimes I'm there for two or three days for a little residency and I can mm -hmm. find my Alexander technique and brass. And my interests really fall in how does the brain work? I think that comes mm -hmm. from a study with Arnold Jacobs. Mm -hmm. Intrigued that he wasn't just a musician and he wasn't just a guy that was good at creation. He was a, a teacher that was fascinated by the workings of the brain yeah. and how we learn and how we then impart the musical message yeah. How that actually occurred, you know, and through my Alexander study, I, I remember one of those, those yeah. ways from Arnold Jacobs, it all comes together. You know? Yeah. Well, you know who else is like that is Bobby Shue. Yeah. I mean, I, I, amazing. yeah. And I just sat there and listened and absorbed all of this. And then I said, hey, I'm going to call you back for a lesson. And she, he was like, yeah, whatever. Well, I did. I got a lesson with him like four days later and just clarifying and it's so important to know not that it's all just for me to relate to my students but you know i'm trying to take this in and and process it myself and understand how everything works and then it can become effective for my students yeah, one of my so. other projects is you know i you, you can easily feel as a creative or an entrepreneur or a self-employed independent contractor we all know those mm -hmm. now at a time of <laughs> right. But it's really easy to think, well, I don't, everything's been said already. There's nine, five million books out there. But at my time at Eastern Music Festival, those students are so on fire every year. And, you know, not just there, but over the years, students have said, no one else teaches like this. I, you know, you should write some of this stuff down. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's all of us, you know, we go back to, our Chickowitz and Arnold Jacobs and whatever. But we also find our own voice of how we, our experiences, you know, I was a music mm -hmm. major and then I went into performance and I'm a singer and, you know, fascinated by the brain and how things connect in our mind and body. And so, but I have found some very effective things that work for everybody around the globe, regardless of what language is being spoken. Right. <laughs> or if the language is not even shared, I can share these things quite quickly and effectively and it's just so exciting that's the most exciting <laughs> thing you know so i have my other project that's been on my brain for three years now um is a little hip pocket thin maybe even laminated maybe even 10 page fold out you know what i mean mm -hmm. Something very useful you can stick in your trumpet case even if it's a little you know you know, that's kind of what I envision. Maybe one for teachers and one for students or possibly the same. I'm not quite sure yet. Mm -hmm. uh, because there has been enough people asking me for that. It's yeah. just, you know, when you start writing music, then it's like that kind of takes over. And and of course, <laughs> I'm playing. And it, yeah, it's hard to keep all the <laughs> going. And, right. You know, right. Anything into the yeah. So. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about some history of of you. Uh, <laughs> where, uh, well, I mean, I, I know you've done solo playing. A few years of history. <laughs> uh, well, are there epics or eras that we should be <laughs> categorizing this into? I love that epics. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, and, and to go back to uh, you mentioned uh, uh, freelancers, that whole thing. But you know, gig workers now is 
yeah. the, that catch catchy uh, catchphrase. Ah, yeah. I'm curious uh, who your influences were, because uh, like I was just saying a second ago, I know you're a soloist. I know you've done the orchestral thing. I know you've done the chamber music. Um, you've done the teaching. Uh, but who helped shape all of that? And I know that's, yeah. And you could go a number of ways on that. Just to put a positive spin on that, I hope that's not done as in the past. I'm continually still doing all those things, hopefully <laughs> now and in the future. Yes, yes, yes. In the future for all of us. But, um, you know, my, uh, my very first teacher, Mark Enga, um, he was also a recorder player. And I actually played the recorder with him in lessons before the trumpet. And, you know, I learned how to double time on the recorder. I remember it as being before. I don't quite know if that's true. But I mean, I was quite yeah. a little soprano recorder. I remember doing grand number four. Mm -hmm. And that's the back of this thick recorder book. Um, and yeah, I remember learning to double time on the recorder. You know, because there was no resistance. It's like, right. <laughs> And I remember doing the Bugler's Holiday with my second trumpet teacher, who actually studied with the same professor, James Thurmond, who wrote um, a book on note leading. He was a trumpet teacher, but also, I believe, a conductor. Mm -hmm. He worked at Lebanon Valley College. I was in, um, you know, central Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. Harrisburg area. And my second teacher was a jazz player, and he had me. I remember. Coming back, it might have been my first teacher. I did a Bugler's Holiday. My sister played trumpet. She also played horn. Um, my whole family, my brothers, and they all played. My oldest brother played bass trombone. My sister played horn and trumpet and piano. Mm -hmm. My brother closest to me played trombone, and then I was there with little corner. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we played a Bugler's Holiday. It was three women, even back then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember coming back and telling my trumpet teacher, I was in about grade six. And I said, you know, <laughs> I used that double tongue and I think I cheated. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> but it felt loud. You know? Yeah, yeah. But it was easier, so I used it. <laughs> oh, funny. But they were big. That was a huge influence, having the same pedagogue that taught both of them. Mm -hmm. So my first two teachers had that connection of musical leading mm -hmm. and my second teacher being um, a jazz player, he played bass and piano and, tr and trumpet. Mm -hmm. So we had jazz recitals. We each played, you know, so what? Then we'd have a little solo during our little <laughs> recital. And, you know, during Christmas time, we'd play by ear on all the tunes. And then, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I was fine with that because I came from a musical family. And we all knew how to harmonize in parts and stuff. And so mm -hmm. a lot of it was, I was gifted from my family. And then I kind of took it. You know, mm -hmm. My mom started being piano and taught me all really good theory until we each other's throats, and then I had another piano teacher. Mm -hmm. But really, I think I can't. I mean, most people might say, "Oh, Dachshitzer," or "Oh," but for me, I have to say my earliest influences were the sound of my first teacher. I remember he, he, mom, he came to my house. Like I think that was unusual, actually. Mm -hmm. Everybody in his little trumpet class, mm -hmm. but we made him private lessons. Probably not very much. Right. And I think mom probably paid him with, you know, muffins at times. <laughs> but, you know, I remember being in my basement and he playing this A. And I remember just, it was such a beautiful sound. I just, yeah. just 
you know, it was a huge influence. And then when I went to Mansfield, oh, I should mention Tim Erdman was one of my teachers as well. Mm-hmm. Had been in the Marines. Mm-hmm. The Erdman brothers. There's Jim and Tim, and okay, quite known in that part of the country. Um, and he kind of prepared me for college, doing stuff kind of technically way beyond where I was capable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my teacher tells the story of how I came in playing the legend, and he's like, "Yeah, I had to give you something else to know if you could really play." <laughs> wow. So I don't know if I couldn't play it or if I just didn't sound like I owned it, but you know, Tim came out of that cornet marine band technical tradition so it was a mm-hmm. little different than what i'd been brought up with my first mm-hmm. years but i i was very fortunate to land at mansfield where a number of generations of my family actually had attended and but the teacher there mike galloway mm-hmm. unbelievably amazing teacher play everything in every key all the time i thought this was normal um, <laughs> I was afforded the opportunity as a freshman, second semester freshman, to be in the, in the faculty brass quintet. Wow. Three and a half more years. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a few people. I think maybe Eastman and maybe Cal State Fresno was like the only two places in the country that had an undergrad in the faculty quintet. I'm sure, I'm sure now I'll find out there's more. But <laughs> so, I mean, this was unbelievable. Yeah. You know, yeah. Truly, I was able to just, I mean, I, I was playing with my gods at the time, you know, my. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, the director of the Wind Ensemble, Donald Stanley, had studied a few times with Jacobs, and he was the tuba teacher, and I played in the brass quintet with him. <laughs> he was like, oh my gosh, if you yawned, you would be tossed out. You had to put your stand up and cover your mouth. And <laughs> oh my gosh. And he was a fantastic musician. Yeah. Taught all of us, all of the people in my year at Mansfield, music ed people. Mm-hmm. Uh, primarily, predominantly, of the 17 of us that graduated, I think it was 16 went on to graduate school for performance. Wow. Top schools in the country, Eastman, ASU, Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And um, the other one, I think, went on for music therapy. Wow. So that school in that time, yeah. in the late 80s, was, yeah. uh, well, was it 82 to 86 I was there. Mm-hmm. What kind of quintet repertoire were you working on? At that point? Oh, my yeah. God. Well, fantastic question. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what time it is, but. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I want to, and I, I'll keep an eye on that. Empire Brass. Okay. I got to tell you this story. This, we were working on uh, a lot of transcriptions and stuff my teacher did. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, Fisher Toe Exhibition. I remember playing that. <sighs> that sort of thing. And yeah. regular gig music. Um, I remember we did a fair bit on E flat. My teacher would be on piccolo and I'd be on E flat for the way he wrote some of the transcripts. Mm-hmm. I remember just because I loved playing on E flat. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell you that Rolf Schmedvig was the conductor of the Williamsport Symphony in Pennsylvania. And as a freshman, I auditioned for second trumpet. And I didn't know anything about orchestral auditions. But as I referred to, I had a really good ear and great right. background. And I remember my teacher to determine who would be permitted to go to the audition. I definitely had a B flat trumpet. And I remember him putting up Riccio Italien, which opens in E major. Right. <laughs> and I looked at it and saw that it was an arpeggio. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I figured it out. I was like, ah, an F sharp major. Bah, bah, dee, bah, mm-hmm. bah. So I passed the audition from him. I went on 
an audition for Rolf, my first live orchestral audition. No oh, my gosh. <laughs> Rolf was in my face conducting Oberon two feet from my bell. And that was just that age where, you know, you're clueless enough to not even be scared. Did you know who he was? Yeah, it didn't really. But it didn't matter. I, I just loved the trumpet and music. And I wanted to show him what I could do. And I mean, I was probably heat up a little bit. But I remember not being clued into what was going on, you know. I was just like, well, I can play this music. I can show them I can play this, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I won. <laughs> wow. And I played with this fantastic principal from Penn State, Rob something, an African-American man, very unusual at that time, mm -hmm. my principal. So here we were playing four or five concerts, classical concerts, plus pops with Rolf, who brought down the Empire Brass to play with us every other concert. Oh, my gosh. So here I am in little old Mansfield, this rural area of Pennsylvania, you know, half an hour to the New York border, an hour to Williamsport, not near anything. So what did we do? We practiced, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we had an incredible work ethic, an unbelievably amazing group of brass faculty, and Rolf. He was Rolf in every way, except yeah. he was any problems, <laughs> Sure. You know, he had a bad reputation of working poorly with women. Um, I remember being a little bit uh, scared when he came out to Northwestern. Uh, he came out to uh, play at Crystal Lake near Northwestern when I was in school there for my graduate work. And I remember going to the concert, people were like, you know, I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he would. Mm -hmm. and, and then he comes running up, gee. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Embarrassing. But, you know, I think. He never, he was only supportive of him. I, I don't mm -hmm. know. He was, yeah. He was well. Everybody. Yeah. I know he had his challenges, but. Yeah. How I, was he? So that was a major influence on my sound, yeah. on my quintet sound, on approaching the trumpet, of course, because he played, he played the Haydn, one of our concerts. I mean, mm -hmm. we had all of that. The whole group would play with us, you know, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. We just revered. I mean, we got those direct-to-digital records back then. Oh, know, wow. Now, mm -hmm. uh, Empire and of Canadian, and we were like, who's better, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so how was he as a conductor? Um, you know, I was really young. I was 17 when I was first at school, 18. I mean, I think he was probably fine. I mean... I remember he used to change his shirts at permission. He was still very full of himself. God rest in peace. Uh -huh. You know, he just always wanted to look good. Yeah. So there was probably something to that. But he was musical. I, mm -hmm. I think he could get through and know what to do. Sure. When he played the Haydn, he did tell me, because I went up afterwards. I'm a little bit like Brigida in The Sound of Music, if you know that role. She's oh, a yeah. truth teller. So I don't have much to say unless it's possible, I won't say anything. So I went up and I said something like, said something, it had gone very poorly for Rolf. And there was a big reception and he had to still be in that vein of meeting everybody and he, mm -hmm. talked and he goes, don't even say anything. And I said, oh, well, it was interesting. <laughs> he said, thanks for being refreshing. These people are pulling me full of loan. And he said, don't ever try to play and conduct on the same half. Oh. And I've never forgotten that. Of yeah. course, I've overdone. My recitals are generally twice as long as they need to be. <laughs> I always had so much I wanted to play. Right. And it's taken me a whole career to learn not to overdo. That's just the way I was wired from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> like, but 
still it's great it's a great you know we learn in the funniest ways and the mm. tiniest things are what make an impact and that he really had a rough time and it was because he just didn't have enough time to you know he conducted and played i should also mention that he was trying to conduct and play oh. like how many people do that you know, yeah. it wasn't just that yeah. he earlier in the piece or right. in the program. It was that he was conducting and playing the Haydn. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, he was, you know, he was actually a huge influence. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what was your first orchestral experience? That was it. You know, oh, that. That right there. Well, I, mean, I had played in, you know, county orchestra and mm -hmm. uh, probably a few other things that, again, you don't have a clue about. You play a lot of Beatles medley, you know, in junior high. <laughs> you know, we, we didn't have a youth symphony that I was aware of when I was mm -hmm. in school. I was actually on stage being, you know, Maria and West Side Story. I was much more involved mm -hmm. in that end of the stick at that point. <laughs> but in college, I was immediately Winston Sam or uh, excuse me, Williamsport Symphony. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really a working great orchestra at our school. The wind ensemble with Don Stanley was the amazing group. And that's mm -hmm. the group that we all yeah. lucky to be in this question. Yeah. All the way through. But um, so, and then, you know, that's why when I said I wanted to go on to teach college, that was my thing. I knew I wanted to teach, but I had no interest in teaching public school to get up early, no interest. And to have to teach, uh, fix people's interests, or uh, fix people's music, or excuse me, instruments. No interest, no ability, no wanting to do that. So I knew though I was quite a, like I was very teacher oriented. And so I said to my teacher, well, who should I study with? I wanna go on to teach college. And he said, I, you know, we had this connection with Don Stanley and Don Carantoni at, at ASU. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of us, actually four of us got really fantastic offers for grad work at ASU. Mm -hmm. But then my teacher said, you know, you ought to try out for this guy named Chickens. I just did really great things about him. Mm. And I did. I was like, I did everything. Mm -hmm. oh, I was like, oh. so I tried out for Chickowitz and I got in. Mm -hmm. And a guy I was dating at the time. We both got the same offers at each school. ASU. <laughs> I had to decide, and I decided Northwestern. And he decided ASU. It was a big deal. Yeah. But, um, you know, fantastic. I got in Civic my first year. I was first associate. I was in Millar Brass Ensemble my first year. Wow. So that was the only year back <clears throat> for graduate school. Mm -hmm. So I was really fortunate once again. Mm -hmm. And of course, with Mr. Chickowitz, um, probably one of his more frustrating students, but <laughs> <laughs> I tried so hard. You know, yeah. Too hard. yeah. And he, he did everything he could to get me to not try so hard. and. Mm -hmm. He, he, he was, but he was, he was great, of course. Uh, I'll tell you this, this reminded me, um, I started studying with Vince DiMartino back in 82. Uh -huh. And uh, that was as a junior in high school and, and then a few years into college while he was teaching at UK. And then uh, almost 20 years passed. And I saw him, he was actually playing third in one of the regional orchestras he yeah. subbed in. Yeah. And I said, Vinny. And he goes, Larry. And I said, wow. I'm surprised you remember me. I said, I think I was probably your worst student. And he goes, oh, no, you <laughs> were not my worst. <laughs> I was I was so relieved. I thought for all those years that I had just totally it blown it. You know, yeah. no, no pun intended. But uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting because everyone, everyone my year that I went in, of course, you're only their year, had already studied with Chikowitz except me. Mm. 
I had been with them at National Youth Orchestra of Canada. We had a number of Canadians in the studio, or they'd come taking lessons before auditioning. Mm-hmm. And so I was pretty green and, you know, I used to show up dressed up. I was very naive and took my lessons, you know, mm-hmm. I was very young. So uh, it took me a little while, just a, just, a, just a quarter to get over dressing up for the lessons. <laughs> and it'd be like, you know, you stay up all night and then you show up to a total lesson, that type of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, um, but I knew that, you know, each of us was being taught individually because I knew some of my peers were, to my mind, possibly going faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would play duets with some of them in their lessons. He never played duets with me. But I also kind of, I don't know, I didn't really have a, I didn't struggle with that. I just appreciated that he took us at our levels. And I also knew that, you know, a lot of other people had played all this orchestral stuff and they could say like Chike and Shasti and Rock. And then nobody would <laughs> And, um, but you know what? Because of my jazz background at Mansfield and mm-hmm. my ear, I could listen to an excerpt and hear the whole orchestra and have mm-hmm. it you know, once. So my listening ability put me on par. And in fact, I did fine at the school. And as I say, I then ended up, I was in seven, I took auditions along with, you know, the 40 or other 50 keen people there in the Chicago area, mm-hmm. all these great orchestras. And I, I was in seven of them. I, I had wow. auditions in seven of them because mm-hmm. I just, you know, you're also still young enough to be like, I can't wait till they hear me do my Patricia. It's <laughs> a good mindset, you know. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but uh, certainly, my first time hearing the Chicago Symphony live, I was there a couple weeks early before Northwestern started looking for jobs. Um, I worked in the Saga food cafeteria for the Northwestern <laughs> football team, <laughs> and I I did all this work that was well beyond normal work <laughs> and um i remember going to ravinia mm-hmm. and uh, hearing bruckner seven not knowing the piece at all and just going oh my gosh this is so repetitive and the brass keeps coming in so loudly <laughs> 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 that was my first exposure and then i got a job as an andy frain usher so that i could usher at orchestra hall and mm-hmm. save money and hear the symphony and my first gig, they, they put me at Wrigley Field with all the drunk people. I went. It, it was a horrible experience. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Men doing bad things to me, and I was like, oh. mm. so I said, I went back to Andy Frayne because they were drunk and wanting beer. And so I went back to Andy Frayne. I said, you know, I took this job so I could usher at Chicago Symphony. You put me on the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then I ushered, so I would hear four concerts of the same thing with with my ears, which were yeah. that remembered everything, you know. So like, I got a huge, huge, um, I mean, that was my, that was my, what can I say? Uh, Bud was yeah. my main teacher of sound. Yeah, and, of course. And that whole symphony. And I was in civic nonstop from the whole time I was there, either as a first associate member, second or third associate. I was at all the sectionals every mm-hmm. week with Bud. And mm-hmm. going to all those free concerts after that, that they offered at that mm-hmm. time. And um, I even went away to Hong Kong and played my job principal over there for three years, came back and auditioned for Civic because I heard them do Shostakovich 5. I got a balcony, mm-hmm. you know, first balcony or a, a box seat. I 
crept in at intermission. Somebody was leaving. And I heard Bud play and I thought, okay, I might have had three years of full-time experience, an opera ballet and symphony, but I have so much more to learn. Right. I'm hearing him at that point, he had to be, he had to be 75 at that point. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking with Barbara Butler. I was, I ushered at a Music of the Baroque concert and I talked with Barbara. I said, you know, I feel like I really want to audition for Civic. It's tomorrow. And I said, I haven't really prepared, but I think I could probably play all right. But I said, do you think I'd be taking a job or a position away for some younger student? I was still only 27. Mm-hmm. And she said, if you feel you want to do it, you know, Barbara's very, and she mm-hmm. said, you go audition. So I went and I remember I got a perfect eight from her set. Yeah. Audition. I still have that sheet. Wow. And I it was hanging in my window for many years. Yeah. Because that was, and then I was in it. I was actually finally in the section, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. here. And it was just fantastic. <laughs> Boulez, we did the whole Bartok, Marcus Mandarin, the whole thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's things you cannot, and Baron Boyne conducting us on the Beethoven Piano Concerto from the keyboard. I mean, this right. is unparalleled in your mm-hmm. life, you know as a young player um i was just back there for the civics 100th anniversary wow right, right before covid february 29th mm-hmm. centennial so really you know i've been called my i've been told my sound that it was like i'm a budlet a budlet <laughs> probably my best i love that compliment but yeah. that really so much my orchestral sound comes really from bud that mm-hmm. is completely formative and um yeah 100 percent. because you know chickwoods didn't really play in lessons and my teacher um i sound a lot like my teacher too of course mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. um wow you know uh well there's nothing wrong with sounding like bud no, right? I mean, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with sounding like Boazan or oh, or, or no. Gatala or any of those any of those oh, guys. Warhorse people, yeah. just warhorses. The, the working conditions they had, you know, it was just a different era. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, it's nothing. There's nothing wrong with sounding like Susan Slaughter or oh Marie Spezialli. Susan was a mentor of mine. I did her trumpet lab, mm-hmm. where she'd bring a number of eventually women. I think it started out with men and women, but then she kind of morphed it over to women. Mm-hmm. And I did that so many summers in a row for a mm-hmm. week. We would live and breathe full orchestral sections, you know, pieces. Mm-hmm. We'd be assigned the pieces ahead of time and we'd do them from 9 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. <laughs> we'd do for lunch and yeah. and we lived at like a neighbor's home mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and actually i think initially i can't remember i think we lived elsewhere but we'd come to her house with the two dogs the one beagle was named bud oh he was <laughs> a huge mentor to me mm-hmm. as i started playing you know i was principal in the illinois symphony which was a kind of a, my first big gig outside of chicago mm-hmm. and i remember having some challenges of thinking oh i'm only two more hours from St. Louis. <laughs> on there. So I took some extra lessons with her and she's been a huge mentor throughout my career. Mm-hmm. When she left, she brought me in to play. I mean, I, her recommendation and everyone else agreeing to it allowed me to go in and play a subscription series under David mm-hmm. Robinson, their music mm-hmm. director for principal trumpet. 
It was just completely wonderful. All yeah. the players, almost all of them were from Chicago. I felt mm -hmm. very at home. Yeah. You know, I really could not have felt more. I was like, oh, they sat up in front of us, which is very Chicago at that point. We used to always have the horns in front of the trumpets. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing and hearing them. And, and, you know, so she really helped so many different ways along the way, you know? Yeah. And I had her in for a nice three days at the schoolyards and board that I heard her work in so many venues, like <laughs> doing so many things. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. She would say, can you do it? And they'd say, yes. And then she'd say, will you do it? Oh, yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. Please know how appreciative, grateful I am that you were, <laughs> you were willing to share. And oh my gosh, if people thought they knew you, before they're going to know all the different things i mean composer performer uh, alexander technique uh, tai chi uh, just uh, what an amazing uh, amazing uh, life all you know, of us and, are amazing we just all find our own path and our voice that works for us you know yeah, yeah. and um as i say i'm i'm lucky that my ability to play by ear i scat sing because I'm too lazy to do what the work, the incredible work that all the jazz players do that play right. songs. Um, and so I did a lot of, I've done a lot of scat singing and I'm a puckalo player, like whistle, whistle tones. You know. Puckle? Yeah. Oh yeah, so I've, I've never heard that before. Rob, Rob McCroby up in Canada is a puckalo player. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. So I've scatted with, with whistling and, but most of my improvisational stuff just comes out through my I either improvise or I now I'm starting to write it down. I still mm -hmm. hate writing it down. I have a good mm -hmm. friend putting it on the computer for me. I'd much rather just improvise. But if you want to play with somebody else, right. get something down on the paper. And I, I do have a number of these things I, I want to put out. Oh, and the last thing I wanted to mention was my last little project mm -hmm. is I am still getting permission from uh, actually Pema Chodron, the Buddhist uh, monk. Uh, a woman who is at the Tibetan monastery, the only one in North America, I believe, is up in mm. So she has a number of these beautiful sayings I found off a calendar, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a number of pieces because I was inspired by her writings. So I thought, hmm, what I'll do is I'll use her mindfulness expression, maybe two or three lines of this beautiful commentary that she's written. Then I have written like an embodiment, a bodyful, I call it, a bodyful expression of that mm -hmm. to express, you know, what's being said mindfully, like our eyes are seeing this precious world. And then I might take you through a very brief eye exploration so that you're embodying what you're reading and then you play the piece I've written. So it's a way that my unique voice of what I bring, you know, mm -hmm. Bring my voice of what I feel is important for students to be so embodied. Mm -hmm. And I'm still seeking permission. Um, it's been a very long process to know. They want to know where it's going to be published before mm -hmm. they even can get the permission. And I'm like, I think I'm going to self-publish, but maybe not. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to know. Yeah. Um, but I think now I've gotten all the pages it's from. I have like buy the book because it was out on a calendar. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, but that's a really neat thing I'd like to have put out. Yeah sometime soon as well that I think yeah. for all instruments, brass, all brass. No. Well, thank you. This has been a real pleasure to, to get you. to hear about you. You know, you're very welcome. And um, 
Hopefully we'll get to run into each other in an ITG. That's where today's interview ends with Judith. And typically I will have excerpted a portion of the interview and made that available exclusively for my Patreon patrons. You can find out more about how to receive that benefit and others at patreon.com slash studio HFL. Again, to those who are already patrons, you have my deep appreciation for your support. Another reminder to visit Apple Podcasts and leave both a star rating and a review, and visit the Studio HFL YouTube channel and subscribe. This has been a production of Pal Music, and the show is supported by the generosity of Messina Covers, Eastman Winds, S.E. Shires, Hammond Design, and Pickett Blackburn. Once again, I'm your host, Larry Powell. Grateful that you spent some time here today with me, and be sure to come back next week. Have a great day. See you next time.